Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. Uh, my guest is Thomas Seyfried. He's a professor at uh, Boston College, part of the uh, biology department. He's been working on cancer and methods to uh, understand cancer metabolism and to slow it, stop it, and to help people hopefully overcome their various cancers. He's got a lot of great material to cover. I've interviewed him before, and I wanted to have him back for some updates on what he's been learning. So welcome back, Tom. Thank you. No, thank you very much, Richard. Nice to be here. Yeah, just so this can be standalone, um, in case people don't know, tell me a bit about your background, and then we'll go on to the projects you're working on today. Yeah, well, right now I'm a professor of biology at Boston College, as you said, biology department. I teach two classes this semester, general biology to the non-majors, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at 11 to noon. And then I teach my cancer metabolism class on Tuesdays and Thursdays from 9 to 10.15. So I'm occupied every day with my teaching responsibilities, and I'm also running the research program in the lab, developing new diet drug therapies for managing cancer. Okay. So are there particular cancers that you're attempting to understand and target? You know, solid tumors, liquid tumors, rare cancers? Like, what, what is your focus? Well, right now, our focus is on brain cancer, but in our work, we found that the metabolic abnormalities in brain cancer are very similar to the metabolic abnormalities that we see in all other cancers, including the blood cancers. So liver, lung, colon, breast, bladder, AML, the leukemias, they all have a similar kind of problem. They can't use oxygen for energy. They are locked into a fermentation metabolism which means that these cells can survive in the absence of oxygen because they use the ancient pathway of fermentation to survive and grow. And the fermentable fuels that we have found to be necessary and sufficient for this cancer cell proliferation is the sugar glucose and the amino acid glutamine. We've interrogated other amino acids. We can't find any other amino acid that can be as effective as glutamine. And glucose is... Sugar, And we found that no cancer cell that we have ever looked at or anyone has ever described can survive on ketone bodies or fatty acids in the absence of glucose and glutamine. So when you know that, what I just said, you now know the strategy for managing the vast majority of cancers without toxicity. All right. Well, a couple of questions here. So I guess normal cells will do ox- oxidative phosphorylation. They use oxygen to produce ATP. What is this fermentation process? What inputs does it use? How efficient is it compared to oxfos? You know, give me some uh, details on it if you can. Yeah, well, fermentation is the most ancient pathway of energy metabolism. It's an heirloom of the past. When organisms first arose on the earth, I think it was about 2.7 billion years ago, there was no oxygen in the atmosphere. So all the organisms at that time used a fermentation mechanism. Fermentation is simply energy without oxygen. And the glycolysis pathway 
uh, is one of the most ancient pathways known. It's the pathway of life. After cells, after cyanobacteria produced oxygen, then we came to met, uh, eukaryotic and more complicated metazoan organisms. So all of the cells in our body have this glycolytic pathway that prepares glucose for full oxidation in the mitochondria. But the cells that evolved originally had no mitochondria and, and they didn't use oxygen. The cancer cells are simply falling back on these ancient pathways. So they now, in normal cells, the preparation of glucose for pyruvate is present in the majority of our normal cells. And then the pyruvate is fully oxidized in the mitochondria using oxygen, generating a large amount of energy. But the cancer cells can't do that. They grow without oxygen and they they upregulate these ancient, ancient fermentation pathways, which involve fermentation of an amino acid, which is glutamine, and the fermentation of the sugar glucose. So these two fuels can be fermented, generating energy without oxygen. So clearly- okay, Quick question here. I don't know if this is a chicken and egg type thing. Do cancer cells start using fermentation pathways because they end up being in an anoxic or low oxygen environment, you know, being inside a solid tumor, let's say, you know, no vascularization near them? Or do they first start doing this pathway and that allows them to continue to exist in a low oxygen environment? Yeah, both. So, because that was the whole thing that Warburg showed. He showed that cancer cells continue to ferment even in 100% oxygen. So why would a cell continue to ferment in 100? We're in 21% in our atmosphere. He grew cells in 100% oxygen, and yet they were still throwing out large amounts of lactic acid. So they're doing that because their mitochondria is defective and damaged in number, structure, and function. I went through the ultrastructure of all the major cancers. So I had to go back in the 60s and 70s and find papers showing the electron micrograph of mitochondria. And you look at the mitochondria and you find them to be few in number and the cristae, the, the inner membrane enfolding in, is abnormal, vacualizations, they have all kinds of defects. Structure determines function. It's the foundational principle in evolutionary biology. So if the structure of the organelle is abnormal, the function of that organelle will be abnormal or insufficient. So some cancer cells may use oxygen for production of some ATP, but it's neither necessary nor nor sufficient to keep them alive or growing. So they have to have a fermentation metabolism in order to remain alive and grow. And that's what all the cancer cells seem to share, that common pathophysiological problem. They can't generate sufficient energy from oxidative phosphorylation. Therefore, they must ferment to stay alive. And the organelle that controls the cell cycle, allowing cells to grow in a regulated way, is the mitochondrion. So if the mitochondrion is defective in number, structure, and function, the cell loses control over its differentiated state and falls back on its default state, which is proliferation, as was shown by Dr. Sonin Sheen and Soto from Tufts University. Proliferation is the default state of the metazoan cell, and the default state of energy is fermentation. So these cancer cells are doing nothing more than falling back on these ancient fermentation pathways, allowing them to grow. And as long as they have availability of glucose and glutamine in the microenvironment, they're going to be hard to kill. The problem is most of the treatments that we use today don't specifically target their fermentable fuels. All right. So, you know, keto diets and things like that, people can massively reduce glucose. What happens if you're reducing glucose, but I would think glutamine would be very difficult to reduce. What happens to a cancer, again, in a very low glucose environment that relies on fermentation? Will it just use glutamine and that's plenty enough fuel for it? You know, they can hang on with glutamine, but they can't really grow without glucose. You need the glucose carbons 
as fuel for metabolites, the synthesis of lipids and proteins and things like DNA and RNA. But there's no diet that will lower glutamine down. Water only fasting for, you know, maybe two to three weeks can lower glutamine, as was shown by the late George Cahill, president of the Joslin Diabetes Center. But we use drugs like 60-oxynorleucine, Don. This uh, will shut down the glutaminase, so glutamine to glutamate is, is inhibited. And you can you can shut down glutamine pathway pretty effectively using drugs, especially when the patient or the preclinical system is in nutritional ketosis. So you lower blood sugar, and then you target glutamine with specific glutamine glutaminase targeting drugs and elevate ketones. So all the normal cells of the body, including the brain, switch to ketone metabolism. And the liver, of course, will burn fatty acids. Uh, cancer cells cannot live on fatty acids or ketone bodies in the absence of glucose and glutamine. So they become non-fuels. They're fuels for normal cells, but not for the tumor cells. Oh, but can cancer cells use ketone bodies and you know these other acids in a low glucose environment, but not a low glutamine one? No, we have never found a cancer cell that can survive on ketones or fatty acids in the absence of glucose and glutamine. So we interrogate these cells. In fact, nobody has ever published a paper anywhere in the literature showing cells living on fat tumor cells, that is, living on fatty acids or ketone bodies in the absence of glucose and glutamine. There's never been a paper published anywhere. That tells us, right, they're non-fermentable. As I said, cancer cells are dependent on energy from fermentation. Ketone bodies and fatty acids are non-fermentable fuels. As a matter of fact, butyrate, the four-carbon fatty acid that's produced in our microbiome, is a good fuel for normal uh, replenishments of of the gut crypt cells, but high enough levels of butyrate will cause cancer cells to die. They create reactive oxygen species in the cancer cells because the mitochondria are defective. So butyrate is a four-carbon fatty acid. It's used by normal cells for energy, but kills cancer cells because cancer cells cannot ferment fatty acids or ketone bodies. Ketone bodies cannot be used by cancer cells because they're non-fermentable. So as I said, the only thing that keeps cancer cells alive is their fermentation metabolism. And there are only two fuels that can be effectively fermented, glucose and glutamine. All other issues become less important. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now back to the show. Wait, you mentioned a couple of times in the absence of glucose and in the absence of glutamine. So what happens if both are present? Like, Yeah, sure. Yeah. Well, that fatty acids aren't going to be used. But however, fatty acids are uncoupling it. What they can do is they can uncouple the mitochondria. You know what that means? They're going to, that means that tumor cells, fatty acids could potentially enhance tumor cell growth by upregulating the use of glucose and glutamine the two fermentable fuels. So fatty acids themselves are not being utilized, but they can stimulate tumor cells through an uncoupling mechanism, forcing a more aggressive and a more active fermentation metabolism. So again, as long as glucose and glutamine are in the microenvironment, cancer cells can survive. If you take that away, even if the fatty acids are there, there's no fermentable fuels, the cancer cells will die. Mm. Um, now on to glutamine, I've heard 
again, for someone that doesn't know, glutamate versus glutamine, what's the difference and where is glutamine produced and, and utilized in the body? Well, glutamine is the most abundant amino acid in our body. If you look at the bloodstream, glutamine is like 5, 0.5 millimolar, 500 micromolar. It's the most abundant amino acid. We need glutamine for a lot of things. It runs our immune system. It keeps the gut healthy. It plays an important role in the urea cycle. So glutamine, is they consider it non-essential because our body can make it from glucose. So we make glucose. Glucose can be used to synthesize glutamate, and glutamate can be uh, synthesized into glutamine from glutamine synthetase. So that's why they call it a non-essential amino acid. But for cancer it becomes an absolutely essential amino acid. So that's why, so it's always there in abundance and it's always available. That's why diet, you can't really lower glutamine with diet and and the cancer cells need the glutamine. So there's no diet. We found and others have found that you, you really need to use drugs. But when you use the drugs to target glutamine, you have to be very careful because uh, as I said, the same fuel is needed for our immune system and our gut. If you're too aggressive in targeting glutamine, then you're going to cause a lot of problems with the gut, health of the gut cell, making people sick. Also inhibiting our immune system uh, from doing its function and picking up dead corpses, uh, dead tumor cells. So that's why we developed the press pulse therapeutic strategy for managing cancer, because you can press glucose way down. The body the body basically doesn't need glucose, except for a few red bloods, and they can survive on the most minimal level of glucose. So you lower the glucose with diet or even some small amounts of glucose inhibiting drugs, glycolysis inhibitors, but you really need to use a drug to target glutamine. But if you do it too aggressively and don't understand the biology of the problem, then you could harm the patient. So so we do pulsing. So we just hit them for a short period of time, pull off the glutamine targeting drug, allow the system to recover, and then we, we hit them again. It's, it's a slow, degraded process by which you can gradually eliminate the tumor cells and you move this patient through the system. So nothing is done too aggressively. It's a slow degrading of the tumor while enhancing the health and vitality of the normal cells because they can burn ketones. This is how we all survived in the Paleolithic period. We were all in some level of nutritional ketosis because there weren't availability of high carbohydrate foods in abundance in our in environment. So we're just... Wait, so, okay. So, so what happens um, if you knock down glutamine for how long does it become a problem? And again, what are, what are the uh, sequelae? What are the, the problems that happen if it's kept down for too long? Yeah, well, you, you start getting immune system problems. You start getting gut issues. You know, your microbiome gets blasted. So you start hammer, You start making a, a person unhealthy because you're inhibiting some of the key physiological urea cycle, as I said. I mean, this is mm. these are linked. So you can't be too aggressive in targeting glutamine. Now, you have to realize that for short periods of time under certain conditions, we, we use glutamine. Like, for example, burn patients, patients that are burned where bacteria now can enter their body in large numbers because the skin is a shield against invading bacteria. But when individuals are burned, you have to give them very high doses of glutamine because it's the immune system that will kill the bacteria as they enter the body. So we need to give very high doses of glutamine under those under those conditions. We're not taking it away now. We're adding it. But if we add mm. glutamine to a cancer patient, you run the risk of driving his cancer faster, especially yeah. if there's glucose available. So again, none of this is really complicated it's just that uh, you really need to understand systems physiology and normal energy metabolism. You need to understand evolutionary biology. And once you, once you understand these fundamental issues, then managing cancer in an effective, logical way becomes much less of a problem than it is that what I just said is basically unknown to the majority of people working in the oncology field.
So again, glutamine versus glutamate, what's the difference? And uh, I had heard that skeletal muscle was a significant producer, I believe, of glutamate. I may have this wrong, but what you know, what do you see there? Glutamine. They, they, they have skeletal okay. muscle. Yeah, that's part of the kexic problem that we see in cancer patients mm. is the dissolving of muscle. And muscle, muscle amino acids, uh, proteins are digested. And the amino acids will go to the liver to create it into glucose, whereas the glutamine can go directly into the tumor. It's a high, it's a high charge. You don't even need energy to metabolize the energy from glutamine. So a glutamine generates energy through fermentation. In the, it's called in the glutaminol, the glutaminolysis pathway. Glutamine is metabolized to glutamate through the glutaminase to alpha-ketoglutarate, and alpha-ketoglutarate to succinyl-CoA to succinate. Succinate, we see in many cancer patients, it accumulates outside the cancer cells, and that's the end product of the glutaminolysis path. Just like lactic acid is the end product of the glycolysis. Yeah. The two fermentable fuel, the waste products that you see are lactic acid and succinic acid. So that immediately tells you that these cancer cells are fermenting glucose and glutamine. For example, if individuals have a heart attack, what we see instantly in the bloodstream is massive levels of succinic acid and lactic acid because the heart can also prevent glutamine really quickly. The problem is they can't do this for very long periods of time. After five minutes, cardiac uh, and brain cells all start dying. So they, they cannot sustain a fermentation and only the cancer. So the, so the body has a protective mechanism for five minutes approximately. Let's say if someone has a heart attack, yeah. to try to keep all the cells going. But after that. Yeah. Same with the stroke. I mean, yeah, our our, ner our nervous system and our, our heart, they can function on a fermentation for a short period of time. But if they go any longer, then you get permanent brain damage and you're dead. So uh, other tissues can, can last longer for on these fermentable fuels. Tumor cells, they grow in cyanide. They don't need oxygen. So you can take tumor cells and right. grow without oxygen. You can't take heart, cardiac myocytes and normal neurons and grow them in the absence of oxygen or let them live. No, I'm with you. Yeah, believe it. So the main producer of glutamate is the muscles or and it's well, modulated through the liver to turn it into glutamine? Is that what uh, you said? Yeah, in cachexia, but not normal conditions. In normal conditions, active muscles produce lactic acid and the lactic acid enters into the bloodstream and is converted to glucose through the Cori cycle. The cancer cells would be throwing out massive amounts of lactic acid, which would go to the liver and be conjugated back into glucose, goes back to the tumor cell through the Cori cycle. So the tumor cells are the two fuels that keep the tumors growing are glucose and glutamine. And, right. and and the cachexia will start to dissolve uh, muscles or other amino acids and get glutamine that way. So again, but if I use a drug to block the glutaminolysis pathway, that chokes off that whole pathway and lower the blood sugar and elevate the ketones. And then you marginalize these cancer cells. They can't handle this kind of stress and they die. So without fermentable fuels, mm -hmm. tumor cells die. It's, it's straightforward. It's very clear. Makes sense. Yeah. But what, what's, uh, what is the main producer of glutamine in the body in a non-cachexic state? Well, as I said, we can get it from the diet, but we also can get it from synthesis. That's why it's called non-essential, because essential amino acids, we can't synthesize internally, whereas non glutamine can be synthesized from glucose through glutamate. So our bodies can make glutamine, but that's why they call it a non-essential. But as I said, for the cancer cell, it's an absolutely essential. Right. What, what causes uh, cachexia and... Someone that's suffering from cachexia, I guess they would have a harder time with glucose disposal. From what I understand, you know, muscle cells are very good for that. You know, like I've, I've worn, uh, you know, like a glucose monitor and eaten a meal and then gone for a walk and I can see it brings my glucose down like 20, 30 points after, let's say, 20 minutes. So I can see that muscular activity is a, is a good sink for glucose. And I guess someone in a cachexic state, 
they would have a much harder time with glucose regulation, which would probably make cancer really take off because they would be like yeah. higher resident levels of, of glucose in the blood, right? Yeah. I, you know, it's really amazing. If you look at the blood of people with cachexia, they have high insulin, high glucose. They, they're just the, you know, when, when you look at somebody under therapeutic or nutritional ketosis, they have low insulin, low glucose. So again, you know, the, the problem is the cancer cells continue to grow and they'll get the glutamine and the glucose through cachexia and through the circulation and through the microenvironment. Use radiation to treat patients. Their blood sugar goes through the roof. Many of these chemotherapies that people use, yes, they'll kill tumor cells, but they'll also elevate glucose. And it also the, the hormones that they give folks to try to help manage cancer. This stuff is like not, I mean, you got to be unaware of physiological biology. To do the things that we do to these cancer patients is medieval. You know, no, no. it's like, give me a break. How is it possible that an entire field knows very little, if anything, about the biology of the disease they're working on? I always find it astonishing. Because they don't want to know. I mean, if they knew, then things would get further along, but they don't. So much no, money maker. I, I don't think that's the case. I, I don't think they don't want to know. I just think they're not trained to know, and they've never been exposed to this kind of information. And they're doing, they're o already overwhelmed with so many cancer patients, and they've been told to do this as part of the standard of care, and they just do it. But this, it's not them. It's the system itself. Uh, seems to be extremely resistant to change. And even more debilitating to this whole thing is the National Cancer Institute keeps telling everybody that cancer is a genetic disease. Nothing could yep. be from the truth. I mean, I've published so many papers showing that cancer cannot be a genetic disease. So did Carlos Sonenshin and Ana Soto and so many other yep. folks showing that these Cancer cells are, it's not a genetic disorder, yet the NIH keeps pushing this absurdity. And they Also, a good question, good question here. What is the origin of cancer in, in most people? Have you identified that? Yeah, it's damage to the re uh, respiration. And so it, how, does, how does the mitochondrial damage happen in somebody? Yeah, okay, well, it can happen through a lot of different things. Let's give, for example, a carcinogen. We talk about chemicals that are cause cancer. How does, it, how does a particular carcinogen, like 3-methylcholanthrene or some of these other chemicals that you hear about, how does that actually cause cancer? Well, we and others have shown that carcinogens go, go to the mitochondria and they autofluoresce. You can see mitochondria fluorescing when exposed to certain kinds of carcinogens. And that's damaging oxidative phosphorylation, causing reactive oxygen species, which then destroy the ability of that organelle gradually over time to produce energy through oxidative phosphorylation. And then this is the knee-jerk response to this is compensatory fermentation, which is what Warburg said. So you have a gradual disruption of oxidative phosphorylation, which then signals the nucleus to upregulate oncogenes, which are facilitators of bringing in glucose and glutamine so that you can bypass the, the deficiency of oxidative phosphorylation. Now, this is, I just gave you the carcinogen example, but the same thing happens with oncogenic viruses like hepatoma, papillomavirus, hepatitis C virus, the viruses themselves or the products of the virus go directly to the mitochondria, interrupting oxidative phosphorylation. Systemic inflammation, which can come as the result of type 2 diabetes and obesity and all these kinds of things. Systemic inflammation damages oxidative phosphorylation in a particular cell of, or organ of the body. Some people will have a liver cancer, colon cancer, breast cancer from systemic inflammation. You have rare inherited mutations like the BRCA1, Leaf-Rauhmeni, neurofibromatosis. All of these inherited risk factors, they're not, they're secondary risk factors. All of them will impact in one way or another, on the ability of the mitochondria to produce energy through oxidative phosphorylation, leading to compensatory 
fermentation. So the pathophysiological connection between a whole array of cancer eliciting agents is through the mitochondria. It becomes very clear. So all, all, and then when you look at the under the microscope at all the major cancers, you see damage to the oxidative. The mitochondria structure is abnormal, and they're all fermenting. And as I said, so what does the cell look like? What is this continuum of normalcy to, quote unquote, the labeling and the attribution that you're now a cancer cell and you can't do oxfos? Like, what does a cell look like along this pathway of, of degradation or along this epigenetic pathway? Like, is there a sudden switch that has been observed? Is it a gradual lessening of oxfos and increasing of fermentation until it reaches this no turning point? Like, what, what happens? Yeah, that's it was shown by Russ, the Ross Kelly experiments back in the 1940s, where they would damage oxfos either through chemicals or viruses. And the first thing you see is an explosion of oxidative phosphorylation and reactive oxygen species, followed by a complete collapse. And then you begin to see a dysmorphic appearance of cells. They're no longer maintaining their structural integrity in the, with respect to their relationship to other cells. So they take on this dysmorphic phenotype. And today we still classify cancer as stage one, two, three, and four. And when you see a stage four cancer, the cells are very dysmorphic. They're proliferating uncontrollably dysregulated proliferation. They're piling on top of each other as opposed to lower grade, where you see similar kinds of things, but it's not as proliferative. So it's a stage of dysmorphogenesis associated with the gradual reduction of oxidative phosphorylation coupled to a compensatory glucose glutamine fermentation metabolism. So all of this has been seen. And the metastatic cancer cell, the ones that spread through your body, are derived from macrophages, are only immune cells, sometimes will fuse with these cancer stem cells, forming these hybrid cells. Most stem cells, everybody talks about cancer stem cells, they proliferate like crazy, but they cannot metastasize or spread until they fuse with a macrophage, which already has the capability of spreading around naturally in our body. So all these metastatic cancer cells are fused hybrids between stem, cancer stem cells and macrophages. And they're fermenting like crazy, and they're very difficult to kill. If you, if you know their biology, they're not hard to kill. But if you think, oh, we're going to have to irradiate and poison people to stop that, this is all nonsense. If you, if you understand the biology of what the process of metastasis actually is, metastasis, then you know how to kill these cells just as effectively as you can kill any cancer cell. So well, what, what, makes, what makes macrophages, it sounds like almost like a viral activity, a cell, I guess, fuses with a macrophage, but it also takes over its cellular activity. And this new cell now is at the behest of the original one and not the macrophage. Like, how does this happen and why? Yeah, well, macrophages have this, they play a very important role in wound healing. So, for example, if you have a contusion in your body or, or something like this, a damage, a lot of times blood vessels break and you have a, you actually have a hypoxic area in a part of your body. Well, in order to heal that wound and make sure bacteria don't cause an infection, our immune system, the monocytes in our bloodstream, immediately pour out of the bloodstream and home in on the damaged uh, area. And they mature into active macrophages in the process of leaving the bloodstream and moving through the tissue into the area where there, where there is damage. If the damage is severe, macrophages not only fuse with each other, but they can also fuse with other cells. It's an evolutionary design process for wound healing. The problem is that often people refer, has been published, that cancers behave like unhealed wounds. So they are causing a disturbance in the tissue microenvironment. And when macrophages come into that to heal the wound, they throw cytokines and growth factors as facilitators for wound healing, which actually make the tumor cells grow faster. So the macrophage in their attempt to try to heal wounds starts to fuse, fuse with some of the cells in the microenvironment. So you then the macrophages pick up the abnormal mitochondria from, from the stem cells, thereby giving the macrophage 
a fermentation, locked into a fermentation metabolism and dysregulated in its growth because the mitochondria controlled the regulation of the growth. So now you have a cell genetically programmed to enter and exit tissues and live in the bloodstream, suppress the immune system because it is the immune system. So now you have this cell running wild, a rogue macrophage, sucking down glucose and glutamine and can move to various organ systems. If you have a a liver or a breast cancer, can metastasize and spread to the liver, the brain. In other words, we know, I know the biology of what these cells are, and they can't live without glucose and glutamine. So we can kill metastatic cells. We can kill stem cells. We can kill all these cancer cells, mainly because of their Achilles heel. They're dependent on fermentation. So once we understand well, all this, we can then go after them and kill them. It sounds like, you know, of course, I may be wrong. It sounds like the macrophages have to work in a, in a hostile environment to normal oxidative phosphorylation. So maybe they're more uh, plastic. Maybe they can switch and ferment a lot easier and faster because they have to work in these adverse conditions, you know, yeah. these wounds. And... Yeah. and because of that, I guess if they have to stay too long at their job, if there's a chronic wound like cancer or something or inflammation that won't heal, they eventually just, I guess, just completely become dysfunctional having to ferment for so long. And yeah. then maybe they're susceptible to attack at that point. Yeah. Well, this is what we're seeing. Well, what we saw, what has been published is that, you know, when macrophages try to attempt to heal wounds uh, and the wound is healed and they work together with the, with the fibroblasts and other leukocytes for wound healing. They they leave the wound and they take up residence close to the wound in the lymph nodes. And they sit in the lymph nodes around the wounded area, the ones that do survive and don't die from their own, what they call oxi- oxidative burst, which is a, what macrophages will do to kill local bacteria. But they move into the lymph nodes and sit there and eventually then recycle. But the issue, of course, is that when people see cancer, they're always looking for lymph nodes. Like, oh, we, we see cancer cells in your lymph nodes. Well, this is exactly what the macrophage would do after a wound heal. So, uh, uh, except now the cancer cells are, are uh, neoplastic macrophages. We went through and looked at all metastatic human cancers, every known type of uh, melanomas to bladder to breast. They all have, they all have epitopes um, uh, structures on their surface, giving them the signature of a macrophage. So we know that the macrophage is the origin of metastatic cancer. Once you know what the biology of the, of the cell is, then you see say, well, what, what are the fuels that keep these cells alive and growing? And it's glutamine. Heavily dependent on, our immune system is heavily dependent on glutamine. So we know to kill metastatic cells, we're going to have to target glutamine, but we have to target glucose at the same time. If we target one without the other, we're not going to get complete or completely managed resolution or management or, if, or even resolution, unless you're able to take those two fuels down together. And that's what no, no one has done. Any There's not a single place on the planet in any any medical school or cancer research center doing what I just said. Why, after someone has chemo or radiation, do they tend to get more resistant cancers? Like, what, what is the change now? Does it make your job more difficult with the diet and the, the drug cocktails to fix, you know, after chemotherapy, after radiation, and why? What's different now? Yeah, well, for brain cancer, we certainly know radiation facilitates fusion, cell fusion. So you're really making a bad situation really much, much worse by irradiating a brain tumor. That's like the worst thing you can do to somebody. But when you give poisonous chemicals like cisplatin and lumistine and temozolomide or any of these alkylating, why? This is poison. You're trying to kill tumor cells. You're not trying to make go bald, which you have all these adverse effects, mucocytosis, 
mucositis, I should say, all of these bleeding, you destroy your microbiome. I mean, what are you, what are you doing? I mean, this is crazy stuff. I mean, you're trying to kill a tumor cell that, that can't live without uh, two fermentable fuels and you're poisoning the body. Yeah, you're going to kill cancer cells, but you're also going to kill a lot of normal cells. And then you're eventually going to harm your immune system. And then you need your immune system to pick up the corpses. You're, you're degrading the very ability of your body to be healthy and take care of the cancer problem. So there, by the grace of God, do people survive toxic radiation and chemo. And a lot of times they pay a terrible price for their survival from cancer with all kinds of other adverse effects, you know, hormonal imbalances, bone issue densities, neuropsychiatric problems, hormonal imbalances. You get all these other kinds of adverse effects. And the new things they talk about, the immunotherapies, Keytruda, Optivo, PD-L1, PD-1 inhibitors, CAR-T, immunotherapy, all these things. These are all based on the somatic mutation theory of cancer. If cancer is not a genetic disease based on the somatic mutation theory, none of these None of these therapies are going to be optimal. Yes, you're going to get some people that are going to survive remarkably well, but then you get all these other folks that are killed faster by these immunotherapies called hyperprogressive disease that people don't like to speak about. But, you know, you're, sometimes the, you target the, the, the epitope on the cancer cells so fast you cause a tumor lysis syndrome, killing the patient from the release of all these toxins. I mean, but there's a lot of people who don't respond to these immunotherapies. And interestingly enough, the people who respond best to immunotherapies develop a very high fever. And it's the high fever that's killing the tumor cells. This went back to William Collies in the early 1900s, where he'd give live, and, live st staph and strep bacteria to cancer patients they would get massively high fevers with 80, 85% cure rate if the person could survive the fever. So this is very interesting. So in other words, it's the fever. Why? Because the tumor cell can't handle the stress that the body has when it undergoes a fever. So today you have to pay $250,000 for an immunotherapy to give you a fever if you really want to get success. I mean, all this stuff is, is, is explainable if you understand the biology of the, of the disorder that you're working with. Yeah, that would make sense. What about uh, resection, you know, surgery to take out its tumor? It seems like that seems to predispose someone to metastasis later on. Yeah, they, they always say, oh, we got it, but they never can get all of it, of course. Why does surgery cause these problems? And they do it too. They don't do it in the right way. It's going after a, a, high, a beehive when all, when, in the middle of the day when they're all buzzing around. What you have to do is you have to use metabolic therapy to shrink the tumor down. You, you target the inflammation of the tumor, the vascularization or the angiogenesis of the tumor, and you just reduce how angry and inflamed this mass happens to be. Then the surgeon can come in and debulk it and increase the probability of getting the entire tumor. But it has to be, this is not known to the oncology field that you can shrink these tumors down massively before you do the surgical debulking, which will lead to a much greater overall survival with the patients. So, you know, when, when somebody's diagnosed with cancer, they oh, we gotta we gotta surgically debulk it. I mean, this is nuts. You gotta do it in the right way. Uh, you know, all of the, many of the things that we are using uh, could be significantly improved if done in the correct way. Even chemotherapies, when the patient is in nutritional ketosis, you can cut the dosage of chemotherapy down by one half or two thirds and still get a, quite a significant therapeutic benefit because the tumor cells are now so vulnerable to even small doses of chemo. So you can actually enhance the therapeutic efficacy of some of these chemotherapies if you know how to use the tools that you have. Unfortunately, most of the oncology field knows nothing about what I just said. Yeah, you're mentioning it. You mentioned diet very early on, in addition to these drug cocktails. So a ketogenic diet, I could see that would massively bring down glucose and therefore insulin with it. 
what's in people's dietarily modulate glutamine or the body will combat me. There's no way to do that. Yeah. Well, I said the water only fasting will do it. And the, and the ketogenic, we, we now know it's any diet. We, we built the glucose ketone index uh, calculator or the glucose ketone index, which is the ratio of ketones to glucose in the blood. Just by not eating, by water only fasting, you lower blood sugar and elevate ketone bodies. This is an evolutionally conserved adaptation to food restriction. So you want to eat a Mediterranean diet and get a low GKI glucose ketone index, pescatarian, vegetarian, carnivore diet, ketogenic diets, doesn't really make any difference. As long as the glucose ketone index is low, 2.0 below, you're going to be putting a lot of metabolic pressure on these tumor cells. So I don't want people to feel that, oh, I have to eat a ketogenic diet. No, you can do a Mediterranean. You can do water-only fasting. You can do vegetarian. It's a little bit easier to get into get your GKI down if you do a carnivore as opposed to a vegetarian. Because the vegetarian diets seem to have a little bit more carbs in the and the fuel that you eat. But any of these diets, if you can get the GKI down. So I, I don't want people to think, oh, I, I got to do a keto. No, you don't. You can do a Mediterranean diet. Just eat a little bit of it. Get your GKI down. Once the GKI is low, then you hit them with the glucose and, and the and glutamine inhibitors. You go after them. You got to make that tumor vulnerable to the treatments. And you do that by getting the person into a low GKI, and then you hit them. You hit them with the drugs and the procedures, and, and you can polish off these tumor cells. You can hammer them. What happens to a person when you, you know, again, when they're in a, you know, they have favorable numbers, they've been doing a ketogenic diet. Now you hit them with the, the press part of the protocol. Um, how long is it, in, you know, in general? I know everyone's different, but what does the person experience during that protocol? Like, you know, how long does it need to be and how many attacks or presses need to be done to get rid of a cancer? You know, what's like a sample of, of a protocol like that? Yeah, well, that's, that's very individual. Some people respond really well fast. Other people takes a little bit longer. I mean, we use non-invasive. It's important to use non-invasive procedures to detect whether the therapy is working or not. So you have CAT scan, MRI, PET scan. You can use a lot of different non-invasive tools to assess whether or not your tumor is responding. Blood work, uh, cancer markers in the blood, variety of different markers that you can use. You don't want to use any invasive procedure to assess therapeutic efficacy. So you look and say, oh, I see this big tumor. It's lit up like a Christmas tree. We're going to put you on metabolic therapy and, you know, gradually lower blood sugar, elevate ketones. You know, we treat you with some low doses of glutamine inhibitors. And then we'll go and look and look and say, oh, wow, the tumor's slowly degrading. It's going away. I don't see it anymore. And the other thing is, how do you feel? How's the Oh, I feel really good. I feel very, very healthy and fit. We'll keep doing that until you have no longer evidence. Or... Like we had for Pablo Kelly that we published the glioblastoma. He's out nine years now, but he's not cured. The tumor is there. It's just become from aggressive to very indolent. And every few years, he has a debulking surgery that brings it back down. But he's on a kind of a low-carbohydrate carnivore diet. He's learned to live with his tumor. Is he cured? No, he's not cured. Is he alive? Well, yeah, he's out nine, nine years with a glioblastoma. is not too bad. Most people That's amazing. Yeah. So, but uh, no, it didn't, did it? So, okay. People say a ketogenic diet will cure cancer. I don't think it will by itself, but but when you put it together with the other parts of the metabolic therapy, we're not, we're not you know, people say cure cancer. No, no, no. We're trying to manage cancer. Can you live far longer than you would have been predicted to live if you were treated with toxic chemicals and radiation? And the answer is, if a person is still alive, when they say, oh, you have a terminal cancer, what does that mean, terminal? Well, that means you're going to be dead. But what if you're living like Pablo was supposedly had a terminal cancer? You have glioblastoma. You're terminal. Well, he's nine years. Well, I mean, I mean, he's still alive. At what point? He's, he's alive long term with a terminal cancer. I, I don't know. What, what else can we say? People with advanced cancer, colon cancer, they were terminal and they're still out five, six, seven years. You know, at some point we're all terminal. But, you know, it's... Are, are there any cancers that just there's not much you can do with them, like pancreatic or 
I mean, glioblastoma is incredibly serious. Are there any cancers you found that don't respond to this, these methods? Not if I think when people try to do metabolic therapy when they're in hospice, it's very mm. much more difficult to... A lot of folks, they run off to the top medical schools. You hear the advertisement on TV about we have the best and we're the smart, we're the no, and you have all this stuff, you know, and, you know, those folks that do survive and do well without any toxicity and their cancer is removed, they feel great. That's that's wonderful. But a lot of them, folks, they get the recurrence after a year or two, and then they go back for more of this stuff. And the next thing you know, they have metastatic cancer and they're kind of emaciated. And now they say, let's do metabolic therapy. The probability of, of success is a little bit less there than it would have been when they were first diagnosed. So even if people are diagnosed already with stage four cancer, which would be considered terminal, we've seen a lot of success. As a matter of fact, Brad and Maggie Jones are producing the documentary called The Cancer Revolution, and they're collecting all these so-called stage four terminal cancers from bladder, breast, colon, lung. And these folks are all still alive, well beyond what they were supposed to be uh, using metabolic therapy. So they're- Well, I can tell you, I met you in person a few years ago at the Metabolic Health Summit, and on stage and in the crowd, I, I heard, I don't know, 15, 20 people say, oh yeah, I had stage four liver cancer 15 years ago. I had brain cancer three times and I'm still here. And so I saw these people literally and spoke to them, you know, some of them that you're mentioning, they're alive far longer than their, their cohort because of these therapies. Yeah. Uh, I think that's the way it's going to be. I think it's only a matter of time before metabolic therapy becomes the standard of care. Not to say that we would eliminate completely radiation or chemo. I think those, or even immunotherapy, you know, they all have a place but I think their place may not be as prominent as it is today. I think metabolic therapy is the way to go. I think patients are going to uh, survive far longer with a higher quality of life. And if we have to polish off a few of the surviving cancer cells using a low-dose chemo or a radiation beam or even immunotherapy, if it can be shown that you're going to specifically kill the remaining tumor cells, then certainly that becomes part of the armamentarium to use for the complete eradication of this condition. But when you do metabolic therapy, a lot of the burden on success falls on the shoulders of the patients themselves. They have to be active participants in metabolic right. therapy. This is very different from standard of care where they where they just sit there and be a target for poison or radiation. But yeah. with metabolic therapy, their success and survival depends uh, on their level of motivation and their uh, level of understanding of what they're doing and why they're doing it. So, Well, I think, look, now we get into the mindset. You know, I've, I had thyroid cancer. I guess it's the best one. You're one of the best you can get. You call it that, you know, papillary. But you're afraid. You think you're going to die. So, you know, these standard of care treatments, you think, if I do this, maybe I'll live. If I don't do this and I try some alternate, what if it doesn't work and I die and I would have lived? So it's like, you know, you have like this gun to your head and you're in a very frightened state. It's very difficult to choose. And there's pressure from family and friends and doctors, all these people, just get the surgery, get the chemo, get to this, you know, we got to get you through this type thing. And it's just, you know, the mental side of it is incredibly difficult, which I think complicates all this stuff. Yeah, it does. It does for sure. But they have to realize that we have over 1,600 people dying every day in the United States from cancer, and the numbers are increasing. And what I'm seeing is, a, and has been reported also, an increase in younger people getting cancer. The 
the mid thirties to I would say from thirty five to fifty five seems to be a zone where a lot of people are getting hit with this with cancer. Yeah, but you got to understand the biology. If you take metabolic therapy, you're going to shrink that thing down. You're going to take a lot of the anger away from that tumor, making it vulnerable to a lot of other things. If you start, you know, immediately taking high dose chemo and all this, I mean, you go bald and and your body gets hurt. I'd say, and I've spoken to people, fifty percent of the people that die from cancer are dying from the toxic effects of the treatments. I mean, they're fear death because you're being poisoned and irradiated. I mean, yeah. this, is, this is medieval. But when you do metabolic therapy, you're strong, you're healthy, you're, you feel good. If you need a little chemo or radiation after you see some might, might some trace of neoplasia in some part of the body, you might want to consider it then. But so many people are, come to me and they said, you know, I I did this and took this radiation. I did five times chemo, my hair. And now I want to try metabolic therapy. And they look like skeletons, you know? It's like, yeah, yeah. to you. So what, what, what can people do if they're pressured or scared into doing standard of care? Like, how can they come through it in a better way? You know, I've heard if you're going to have radiation or surgery or chemo or whatever, if you can fast, like do a water fast for 24 yeah. hours beforehand, you're more likely to come through in a better state than other people. But you know, what have you heard or seen or have utilized with people if they if they end up going through standard of care to minimize its damage? Well, I think, you know, Walter Longo had done some papers where he showed that water-only fasting for three days prior to the chemotherapy causes a lot less toxicity in the treated patients. Um, and, you know, yeah, I, I mean, why? I just don't know. Uh, from what I've seen in people in preclinical systems, how powerful metabolic therapy can be, and then look at maybe if you still have some trace, you might consider chemo or, or some other more standard standard of care. I, I just think, and this is the other thing, which is really, really very troubling when you go to the oncology centers, they never heard that glucose drives dysregulated growth. Uh, they never heard of Otto Warburg. They just don't know anything but what they're trained to do. And it's really a tragedy because the very people that are supposed to know what's going on lack massive knowledge. And I don't think they, it's not that they don't want to do this. They are trained by a system that thinks cancer is a genetic disease. And, and the reason why we haven't stopped using these toxic therapies is because we put a billions and billions of dollars into the cancer genome atlas and the drugs and therapies that are coming out of that have not been able to reduce the death rate. So consequently, we persist with toxic chemicals and poisons and radiation because the, the hope for the future, the hope for cancer was that uh, we were going to come up with all these specific targeted therapies and we mm. won't use chemo and radiation anymore. But that was based on a flawed understanding. Cancer is not a genetic disease. And some of those immunotherapies will kill you faster than the cancer will, or will actually have off-target effects just as bad as the chemotherapies. So again, everything comes back to what is the origin of cancer? Is it a metabolic disorder or is it a genetic disorder? And once people realize it's a metabolic disorder, then there are so many different ways we can use to kill cancer cells without toxicity. But when the entire National Cancer Institute and the world pharmaceutical cancer industry think cancer is a genetic disease, you continue to persist with medieval therapies that are never going to be optimal. And we're going to continue to have cancer replace heart disease in a few, a couple of years, if it hasn't already, already for 
breast cancer, it kills more women now than cardiovascular disease. So, and this was in the American Cancer Society report, the most recent one. So what are we doing? I mean, how everybody keeps talking about cancer, cancer. And, and, and the idea is, yeah, yeah, we can manage it. It'd be managed. We can definitely manage it. It's just that nobody understands the, the biology of the disorder and are, are linked into flawed theories on actually what it is. So until that can be changed, I don't think we're going to make any major progress. No, it makes sense. All right. For listeners that are concerned and need help, where do they go? Should they contact you? Like, well, so you're one of the few that has this info. Like, where, where do people go if they, have, you know, if they well, want help? You know, Richard, it's very de- debilitating because they hear what I say and they say, oh, I'm all excited. Let's go. And they run to their oncologist. They said, never heard of this stuff. It doesn't work. There's no clinical trials. And right. they get really frustrated. And then the guys get angry. The oncologists sometimes get angry. But I can tell you, I'm getting in- emails from a, a number of physicians who have cancer or their loved ones have cancer, and they're coming to me for asking, how do I do metabolic therapy? We're, we're in the process of writing a very comprehensive treatment protocol right now that we hope to get published, which is a how-to manual on how to do metabolic therapy for brain cancer, but it can be tweaked very easily for every major type of cancer because they all have a similar dependency on a fermentation metabolism, and they can't use fatty acids and ketones. So the strategy for managing glioblastoma will be, the, will be very similar for managing lung, colon, pancreas, the whole range, blood cancers included. So, because uh, uh, I even looked at blood cancers and they have the same metabolic problem as glioblastoma and lung cancer. So they're they're all very similar in their in their vulnerability to targeting fermentation. The problem is nobody's doing it in a strategic way, and that's the great tragedy that we have to deal with. Crazy. Okay. So again, for people to follow up, what's like a generic recommendation? What can they do? Is there a place they could email or go or call or a website or you know yeah. until your your protocol is ready? What can they do now? Yeah, I would just say, you know, try to get the oncologist, even your general practitioner, the family doctor can help with this. You don't have to be an oncologist to know to take away. I mean, there's, there's, we already have certain, Don, unfortunately, I don't know why deoxynorglucine is the glutamine targeting drug is not widely available. We find that embendazole, the parasite medication is effective in, to some degree in targeting glucose and glutamine, especially when the patient is in nutritional ketosis. So there are strategies that people can take. What, what I don't like is when the pharmaceutical company finds a very cheap drug and then realizes it has some therapeutic benefit to stop cancer and they scarelli the drug, you know, massively increasing the price, which is immoral in my mind to do that, like they've done with embendazole. But, you know, it's just not right to do this to people, I think. So there are some things out there that people can do. I, I feel bad that they hear me say this and I and they and they go and they just say, where can I go to do this? We don't have a clinical. People are fearing they're going to lose their license if they do metabolic therapy. And I think it has to be a grassroots. People have to demand this from their, their politicians. It's got to come from the people. The people seem to understand this. The system seems to be uh, have a lockhold and not allowing flexibility. Standard of care is like written in granite. They can't, they're not flexible in doing this. They'll do metabolic therapy all, only after standard of care doesn't work. Now the patient's compromised. I mean, it's just like, it's just very tragic. It's very un- unsettling to know what, what's going on in this whole cancer thing. Yeah, terrible. Well, Tom, thank you so much for coming back and for all the work you do and continue to do. I really appreciate you being here again. So thank you. Okay, Richard. Thank you. Very nice to be here. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? 
Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.